This is a content warning for the Macabre Myths podcast. There will be swearing, there will be creepy stories, there will be adult content. If you're a kid, this is not the podcast for you. You'll have to get your childhood trauma from a more age-appropriate source. As always, we recommend the book Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Welcome to the Macabre Myths by the Hexen Texans. I'm Bailey. And I'm Heather, here to bring you strange and unusual stories from around the world. And by around the world, we went around the world once with the trolls, and now we're back to Texas. Because we are the Hexen Texans. It's the area we know. That's true, but we also have some other um, topics or themes coming up in future episodes that go back we do. into that global theme. So it's fine. <laughs> it's balance. <laughs> okay. So, Big Bend, area, national park, and Marfa is what we're covering today. I wanted to give just a brief overview of some interesting information I found about Big Bend. It has nothing to do with spooky, but it was just interesting to me. So, just some little highlights. Big Bend is actually designated an International Dark Sky Park, which is like a group that's dedicated to like protecting places where you can see the night sky really well. So, Big Bend is super remote, is basically what I'm telling you about this. Um, there's not a lot of light in the area, so amazing, amazing views of the sky. Um, it is one of the least visited national parks. It gets 40, no, 440,000 annual visitors, which sounds like a lot, but the Great Smoky Mountains National Park sees over 11 million visitors each year. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So Big Bend also doesn't have a lot of people. So it is remote both in location and in number of people around you at any one time. It's also an absolutely huge park. Yes, and it is. I have I have that number for you. Go ahead. It is 801,000 acres. So 801,000 acres. Because I know when you have a weird one like that, it's like... 8,001 acres? Like they just added an acre for funds? No, eight, 801,000 acres. There, I think that's how you say that number. Good Lord, it's a day. So the in addition to it being a recognized like dark sky area, what that also means is that businesses in the area have to have their lights pointed down. Yes. So they can't have anything shining up at the sky that might pollute what the observatory is doing. Yeah, the um the company or not company, but the institution that does the recognition as a dark sky park, they have like dark sky certified lights. Pacific City, funnily enough, has dark sky certified lights. There was like a big push a few years before I moved here to switch all the lights. You know what? That's nice. It is. Not that you don't still see brightness like from the cities around us, but it's pretty cool. You still get a pretty good view of the sky here. I'm somewhat jealous of this. That sounds really cloudy. nice. Well, it is cloudy and impossible to see the sky a good six to nine months out of the year. Well, that's now disappointing and I feel less jealous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> okay, so that's all I had is basic info. For the park. So this is actually one of my favorite areas of Texas. My great uncle was the Texas historian Joe Franz. And when Lyndon B. Johnson's wife, Lady Bird, went down and was doing like her opening ceremony with the park, he was there with her. Nice. So I have like a family connection to the area and have always loved it. That's awesome. Very cool. To start, we're going to talk about the Marfa Lights. 
Um, I love this area of Texas, even though it's kind of got the reputation of being very like artsy and kind of like the California of the state. Although I find that to be somewhat conflicting because that's also Austin. So make right. up your mind. Make um, up your mind. Make up about your mind about which part of your own state you don't like. Exactly. I personally like Marfa because you have a really unique blend of people, even if um, like it's mostly artists and creatives and ranchers and um, hunting guides. And they all just kind of come together to make this like really interesting mix of people. I don't particularly care for how inflated um, a lot of the property value is because it's artificial. And then you actually have people who are living there who are natives to the area. And it's not really fair for them when you have people from out of state or larger cities come and buy a ruin for $250,000 when you have people that are living in poverty because they're working at Subway. So (laughs) that's my only issue like with that city town um whatever it is (laughs) whatever it is um the marfa lights are actually located outside of marfa texas and they were first spotted in 1883 by a cowhand named robert ellison there is some like reports or folklore that Native Americans like the Apaches living in the area were also seeing the lights and they called them like fallen stars, but there was not a bunch of information about that. Ellison saw them flickering in the distance when he was out with a herd one evening and he thought that they were maybe Apache campfires. He and several other people saw them, so they went out to investigate and when they got out to the area where they had seen the lights, there was nothing. So they knew that it couldn't actually have been any kind of campfire. There was no ash. There were no, um, I guess, no other evidence left that anyone had been out there. Right. Just none of those signs of people being in the area. Exactly. That was actually something I kept running into um, when I was looking up stories in this area. A lot of people were like, I saw people and then I went to where the people were and there were no signs of people. Like no, no footprints, no debris no there's nothing that would indicate a person had been there right um these lights were also seen in 1885 by the humphreys joe and ann and these stories were published in the history of marfa and presidio county texas 1535 to 1946 by cecilia thompson and i think that book came out in the mid 80s they have had reports of these lights going back to the early 1880s, of course, to the present day. And in the 1940s, they were doing a lot of um, flight training in the area. So Mm -hmm. people were flying in from like the Midland Air Force Base, and they were going to find out what was the source of these lights, except they never could find out what the source of the lights were. Excellent. So you have just random stories happening for over the last 100 years of these lights, which are described as being... Um, white, blue, sometimes yellow or other colored orbs that vary in size. So they will hover in an area. Sometimes they'll move rather quickly. And they're all kind of reported to be in the area of Mitchell Flat, which Mm -hmm. is outside of town. And my understanding is they're pretty regular. It's not like oh yeah, we see a light every now and then, you know, like where you hear about UFO reports and it's like, oh, we saw a light once and then like 10 years later we saw it again. It's like, these are often. They're often enough. Yes. So there was actually a guy who tracked them to see how Mm -hmm. frequently they came up. 
and they are a regular enough occurrence that they built a viewing station for them in 2003. Nice. So, um, that viewing station was established nine miles east of Marfa on US 90 going toward Alpine. And I've actually been out there. It was a very nice facility, somewhat crowded, and I did see the Marfa lights, which if I am able to recall them, were kind of like a white yellow orb that would pulse on and pulse off at various distances away from the viewing center. Huh. There are a lot of theories about what the lights are. So there is the theory that it's something atmospheric that's causing it or that it's a mirage. There's no actual evidence, though, of that. They can't run any tests that prove that concurrently. Right. Um, There are also thoughts that maybe the lights are cars passing on the highway which would make sense because from the viewing station you can see that but you're also aware when you're at the viewing station what is a vehicle and what is not right you're very easily like that's a car absolutely and that doesn't the problem with a lot of these like modern excuses like oh it's cars or oh it's airplanes or oh it's this it doesn't take into account the ones from the 1800s right which which i mean i guess Technically, they had cars, but I don't think they were just, like, driving them through the Big Bend area. Well, and definitely when not did... in 1883. No, because when, when, I don't remember when the Model T was a thing, but anyways. I don't know, like I can't remember. Old, but not that old. <laughs> old, but not that old. They were also, they, they also thought, and they have been able to explain some of these away. Like, they do know that cars pass on the highway and you can see those from the viewing center. Mm-hmm. They also know that sometimes the lights are actually small fires on people's properties. So okay, some of right. what you see isn't always going to be the Marfa lights. But most of the time it is, right? They also, and I think that my favorite explanation, and this is the one that I've heard most frequently, is that they're orbs of glowing gas, like methane, that are coming up from the ground. And that is possible because there are oil reserves in the area, but it's not proven. I also liked um, that there's a speculation to do with the rock deposits under Mitchell Flat that is creating some kind of electric charge and that that's what's producing these light the the marfa lights and these orbs but again right no proof no proof so they continue to be just a fascinating west texas phenomenon happening outside of marfa i would definitely encourage you to go check it out again they do have the really nice viewing station and every year they do have a marfa lights festival this has been canceled for 2020 because of covid but it is on schedule for 2021 maybe we should go we can make that a special podcast episode I would freaking love that. Live from the Marfa Lights Festival. That would be fun. Would I do so have a little fun. I have a little handheld audio recorder. We could do it. Yes, it would be so much fun. Oh we God. could make a Hex and Texans TikTok. Oh my god. And record ourselves. Ha. <laughs> Wait, when we do that, it will be content specially for our Patreon patrons. Yes, so, agree. This is absolutely why you guys should subscribe to our Patreon. Aha, uh-huh, see teasing you with reasons okay the first story place mm, ghosties i have for you i have ghosty stories from an abandoned hot springs which i don't know about you but the idea of being in the west texas desert and then getting in a hot springs sounds awful so this does sound awful i know where they are it is on the list of things that i need to do in the state to go Mm -hmm. because they are like right on the rio grande yes yeah So it's the abandoned Langsford Hot Springs. It was a thriving wellness center in the early 1900s. 
It became part of the Big Bend National Park when the Big Bend National Park was made in 1944. And then it was shut down soon thereafter because they were like, um, we can't really be running a hot springs in our brand new national park. So most of the buildings were removed at that time, but you can still soak in the 105 degree Fahrenheit pools. Um, there have been a lot of ghost sightings at the hot springs, which is interesting to me. One of the best ones I found was from a website called TexasLessTraveled.com. And I just want to read you, I want to read you this one part verbatim because I think that this was some beautiful writing. It's my backyard for adventuring vast and magnificent and sort of scary places. And I'll tell you up front, it's not any different today for the loneliness and vastness of the desert and its eerie mountains and the constant strange whispers of the wind around the peaks and canyons, coupled with an environment nearly void of modern sounds, makes the place seem more desolate and lonely if that's even possible. With little imagination at all, a visitor standing in Big Bend National Park could swear they were standing on an off-world landscape of color, beauty, vastness, and mysterious allure. So I think that's I an amazing... That. Yeah, that's such a good description of the park. I love it. So this same person who wrote that beautiful, beautiful description of the park described an event that they had happen at Langford Hot Springs. They went to the hot springs with a friend of theirs, and they got in the water... And they realized the sun was, the sun had gone down, so it was dark. And they realized pretty quickly that they were sitting alone a moment before. And then they looked up and they could vaguely make out the silhouette of shadows of people standing like on a narrow ledge that was near them. Um, it was maybe 50 yards up the bank of the river. And they kind of they stopped because it's not it's not totally unheard of to run into somebody else at the park especially at something like the hot springs which is a more visited destination but still you're usually by yourself but they stopped and they kind of waited they said there were like five or six shadowy figures they were waiting for them to approach and then they were listening for like anybody talking and they didn't hear anybody talking and the shadows never came closer so they finally turned on the flashlight they had with them, which they had one of the like really bright backpacking flashlights, so more like a little searchlight. And they shone it over where the figures were. No figures. No people. No nothing. They turned the light off and the silhouettes reappeared just right as they turned the flashlight off. So they tried turning the light on and off several times, only for the figures to like appear and disappear each time. So kind of I'm doing that the thing. Fuck out. Yeah, so kind of that thing where they're like there, not there, there, not there. Mm -mm. So then yeah. they even they even like called out to the people. They were like, "Hey," and got nothing. What? Because your magic shadow people are going to answer you? <laughs> I know. So. Also, do you want them to answer <laughs> you when they disappear in the right light? In the light. What are you thinking's going on? Like you're turning on the light and just like six people are dropping to the ground to prank you? Like that's not what's happening here. Oh, I'm so creeped out. No. <laughs> so I love this because I also have to I have to read this part verbatim because it made me it made me laugh. Finally, and rather quickly, we pulled ourselves out of the water, slammed our pants on over our wetsuits, and slipped on our shoes. We were distracted for only moments, but when equipped with clothing and turning our attention downriver to where the figures lurked, we discovered they were gone, with flashlight on and with flashlight off. So they finally got scared enough to pull their clothes on and book it out of there, and the figures were just pieced out at that point. That totally gave me chills. <laughs> Not understood in that. <laughs> right? No. 
to tie into that, um, the mountains in that area are called the Chizos Mountains. And Chizos means ghost or spirit in kind of the language that's been spoken in the area for a long time. That's um, interesting. So, yeah, that's not like, it's not like the white people came in and gave it the ghost mountain name. It's had ghostly connotations, even like the, the native people who lived in the area had stories before the settlers came in of like the mountains being haunted. So I did hear a story the other day oh, yes. in this area where um, a gentleman saw like riders and stuff. And when he went to go and investigate them, they were not there. This was in the early 1900s. And he came home and was like, I feel like this is an omen or a foreshadowing of my death. And then he was murdered like three days later. Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a little so bit of a... I totally believe it. Yes. Okay, so um, little story that ties into the Chizos Mountains, and then I know you have something to tell. Chief Alsate, I hope I said that right. God almighty, we should just put in, in the content warning, it should be like, Bailey will we try her best. We are very white. Right. Bailey will try her <laughs> fucking best with names, but she's gonna fuck them up. Yes. Same for other. Chief Alsate was the last leader of the Chisos Apaches, and he was killed by a Mexican firing squad in 1882. And they say that when his body hit the ground, the mountain shook. And then soon after his death, Alsate appeared to... So the guy who betrayed him to the Mexican officials. So Alsate appears to Castillo and terrifies him so badly that Castillo just vanishes, like never heard from again after getting visited by this ghost. And then according to legend, Alsate then made his impression, literally, on the mountains. And if you view the Chisos from the north, you can see the outline of his face etched in the peaks and valleys. And then some say that he's also responsible for the Marfa lights. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I do like that. I do like that too. So my Chisos story is actually about the Chisos Mining Company. Yes. And this happens in Terlingua. Is this the Mercury Mine? It is the Mercury Mine. (laughs) Yes. I love Terlingua. There's not really anything out there. There are, um, it's a ghost town. They have a, like a strip where you have a tourist shop and there's a restaurant and bar, kind of like a cantina. It's called the Starlight Theater. Mm -hmm. And there's a hotel a little bit away from the ghost town that I've stayed in before. I also read that there's a ghost town like within the park proper, but by ghost town, it means like there used to be a town here and now there is nothing. I would not be surprised by that because the park is so huge. I know that there are a lot of like former private residences inside of the park. And I even think that there are some current private residences inside of the park. Oh, interesting. Um, They didn't just imminent domain that shit? I don't think that they did. I'm surprised. Because there's a lot of very large, very expensive houses Mm, in that area. Um, Like I've seen Luna's Hakal, which is inside of the park. And that was a gentleman um, outside of one of these little settlements that had um, built a a nine foot long home for himself, but it was like four feet tall. And he raised like nine to 11 children inside of this very short, very long house. Jeez. So, and that's actually on one of the tours in the park. It's a very interesting structure. Hmm. Um, So the Trilingual Ghost Town, I have a very... um, personal connection to because when I was young and dumb and stupid and put all of my faith in adults I went on a trip to the Big Bend area and it was the first time that I had ever been down there and I went with one of my friends and her families and her dad was like oh my gosh I do this all the time 
we're going to hike to the window in the park, which is a mountain formation with a natural water source. Okay. And I was like, that sounds great. How long is this hike? And he said half a mile. That was a lie. The half a mile <laughs> hike is a paved viewing center uh-huh. where you can go and see from a distance the formation. He wanted to go to the formation, which is a six mile hike. Jesus. Total. So we were equipped with a bottle of water no. each in the summer in Texas. And we started down this trail. And I think that I might have been maybe 13 to 15 and was like super paranoid because in that part of the state you have bears and you have big cats. You also have, apparently, as I was looking into other things, you have one of the deadliest species of rattlesnakes. Yes. So I was super freaked out the entire way and my like adidas sneakers and no sunscreen because this was supposed to be a half a mile hike. A half mile hike, right. Mm -hmm. It was not. So we reached the point where we were going over dry creek beds. We were being told we're almost there. My bottle of water was gone. I'm like, I tried to like conserve that thing. Gone. This is the summer in Texas. So it was easily 100 plus. So we encountered strangers, and I remember begging these strangers for water because they had liter Coca-Cola bottles that they had filled with recycled water that they were carrying around with them, and I drank after strangers. You know I'm a hypochondriac. I drank after strangers. Yes. And I can still taste that Cokey water mix to this day. (laughs) Well, when we were coming back... Um, we separated on the trail because it was supposed to be like a, a quicker way. So I went with her mother and then she went with her dad so that they could get like a car and come pick us up because her mom was not doing well with her one bottle of water. Yeah. And pretty much all of us had heat stroke, but I remember her mom, we finally got to a bathroom. Her mom was just like dumping water on herself and then started giving me some lecture about childbirth. At 15, which let me know that none of us were in a good place. (laughs) So we um, went to the Starlight Cantina Interlingua and had dinner there and got some drinks. And I just remember being like so hot and tired and somewhat confused about this entire experience because I'm pretty sure we all had heat stroke. Yeah. I've been there. Different, Different location, but very similar situation my ex-husband and I decided that we were gonna walk we were in like the painted hills area of Oregon and we decided we were gonna walk around this one hill because it's supposed to be a really beautiful walk and like we look at the map and it's not supposed to be that far and so we take a we had gallons of water in his truck and we took like maybe two like clean canteen 24 ounce water bottles with us so we had a total of like 48 ounces of water with us And it wasn't too bad on the side of the hill that we started out on because the sun was on the other side of it. But then when we got to that side of the hill, it was like, I'm going to die. Because this is in eastern Oregon where it actually gets hot. And yeah, similar thing. Like, we got back to the truck and I'm like, I'm full on, like, heat stroke. Like, I am not sweating anymore. I am not lucid. (laughs) My ex-husband just, like, sat me on a bench and just, like, came over with the gallons of water and, like, poured some on me. And then it was like, drink just a little. Yes. 
this was this situation. We ended up um, eating at the Starlight. I, I just have never been more happy in my life to see just anything, even if it was a very tiny, yes. tiny little town. So, yes, just any semblance of civilization. Anything. Any other people that might just, like, save me in case we needed to be saved because we were seriously in trouble here. Yes. So the Terlingua ghost town, Terlingua is an interesting little city because it's like an interesting little town because you have some modern stuff like a hotel and then you also have the ghost town and they're kind of meshed together. Oh, interesting. So you have even people living in the ghost town. So it's, it's called a ghost town, but you have current residents there. It's not abandoned by any means. It does feature the ruins of the Chizos Mining Company, and the Chizos Mining Company mined for mercury in that area. So currently, there is a restaurant and bar, a cemetery, some shops, and ruins. The ghost town is an old mining town. It was abandoned after the mercury market collapsed. So what's left are some of the original buildings from that settlement, some houses abandoned and occupied, mm-hmm. mine shafts, tourist shops, and you can explore that area, but it's self-directed. And you also have a lot of snake warnings because, again, you do have one of the most like deadly rattlesnake right. versions, breeds, kinds in that area. Um, and it's on the way into the Big Bend National Park, so right outside of Terlingua is actually a park entrance. Oh, okay. So, in 1888, Jack Dawson reportedly discovered a red mercury sulfide in the area called cinnabar, and it's from cinnabar that you extract mercury. So, the town's production, or the Chizos Mining Company's production, really peaked around World War I, and I think that I read somewhere that they had a population of about 3,000 people at that time, but by World War II, the Chizos Mining Company had filed for bankruptcy, and by the end of the war, so... The 19, 1945, 1946, there was hardly anyone left in that area. At the beginning of the 1900s, like through the 1940s, there were also some other companies that had joined the hunt for mercury. So you also had like the Texas Almaden Mining Company, the Big Bend Cinnabar Mining Company, a few others, none of them lasted. So the area was essentially abandoned from the 1940s to the 1960s. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, people started returning to that area. So you had a lot of artists that were moving out there. I feel like a lot of this coincided with the art movement that was starting to gain momentum in Marfa. Right. Because you had a lot of artists moving into that area around the same time. Yes. So you had a lot of people that were beginning to return to that part of the state. And in 1967, they did the first chili cook-off, which is now an internationally famous event. And they have thousands of people come to that area for the cook-off every year. I really want to go. I definitely do not want to go during COVID season, however that lasts. Um, Because (laughs) you have thousands of people like smashed together in a very small area with limited accommodations. And I am not interested in germy germs. And food. And food. Um, There was a really great broadcast that I found from 2017 with ghost stories told from the starlight. So I will add that link into the episode notes um, where a couple of people were talking about spooky experiences, especially around Dia de los Muertos and more. I have actually been in that part of the state for Dia de los Muertos, and it does have a different kind of spooky feel. Um, because you do have so much paranormal activity in the area and the mountains have kind of their own feeling. So 
1010 would recommend. It was yes. very good. Nice. Um, so it felt almost um, like when I was out there, you know, like when you go walking into like a church and you're just like, oh, this is a very like special place. I went into a couple of Dio de los Muertos ceremonies that had that same kind of like holy feeling. So oh, yeah, yeah. It was really cool and I would absolutely do it again. So I thought that this recording from the Starlight was pretty good as far as ghost stories go. Mm-hmm. I do remember hearing a lot of stories. And when you go to that area, it's very easy to talk to people. They will share the creepy things that have happened to them. I remember particularly um, in the ghost town stories about cowboys in the cemetery. Because Terlingua does have a cemetery that has some older graves and then some modern graves. Because people still live there. Right. So I've seen pictures floating around the internet of cowboys and other figures rumored to be from old Terlingua in the cemetery. So those are pretty easy to look up. They also do have their own Dia de los Muertos ceremony that they do in Terlingua in the cemeteries. And again, you are more than welcome to go through that area. Um, just be respectful. Right. Um, there is a, a little hotel outside of Terlingua that is reported to be haunted. And I've stayed there before, but didn't experience anything. Um, the story that I heard was that there's a woman that will appear if you're staying in the hotel. Oh, and that she is in, like a lady in white. She's wearing kind of a white gown or a white nightgown. Um, but I don't know the history of her. I, I don't... There are reports of people seeing her, but I, I never got the background story about her. And then I certainly didn't experience it. Right. So... That's my Trilingua story. Nice. Well, to kind of tie in with the spooky ghost stories, I have the howling spirit of Bruja Canyon. So Bruja... I am excited about this one. Yes. So Bruja Canyon is a canyon just in the park. Bruja, for those who don't know, is basically like witch or magic worker in Spanish. So hikers who hike through the area have reported reportedly heard wailing there um and then there's also reports of apparition sightings it's right on the u.s mexican border and it was the site of many skirmishes during kind of that period of history when we were fighting about where the border was going to be uh so people think some people think it's from those battles that you're hearing like soldiers from the battles and those are the ghosts that you're seeing in the area one of the eeriest theories is that the sounds are the ghostly wails of a native Native American woman who was being chased down by either Anglo or Mexican bandits. The stories vary on which one you get. And then basically to avoid what would happen to her if she was captured, she drowned herself in the river. And some stories include that she had her children with her and she drowned them and herself as well to avoid capture by the bandits. And then the whales are supposed to be her and Hikers through the area will actually say that they hear, like, wailing sounds coming from the water, not just through the canyon. Ooh, that's creepy. It's like a La Lorena story. Isn't that... Yeah, so that was actually something that got brought up, was, like, La Lorena. So, yes, I thought that one was interesting. One of my favorite stories, not all the ghost spirits in the area are human. My favorite one is the spirit of an angry steer who roams the land. And I thought this one was just kind of like a myth, like, oh, somebody made this up. But I found from truewestmagazine.com the history of the murder steer. And an actual historian has dug into this. And this actually happened. 
1891, there were a bunch of cattle ranchers in the area, but there was one, like, big crew. And, like, they were it. And they basically viewed all of the other smaller ranchers as parasites. They were like, we have our cows, and all these smaller ranchers are getting their start by stealing our calves before they've been branded, and then they're starting out their ranches. So they hired, they, they basically got a hired gunman named Fine Gillian to go down to the stock buying event and, like, look out for anybody that was, like, stealing their cows. And... I feel like this gives a new definition to range wars. Seriously. So there was a man there who was known as a very just, like, friendly, affable man. You know, wouldn't hurt a fly. His name was Henry Powell. And he had a little brindle bull. So it was brindle and white. It was a little bull calf. And it didn't have a brand on it, but the livestock commissioner who was kind of the end-all be-all at these events saw the bull the little well it wasn't a bull calf drinking milk from a mother who very much had henry powell's brand on it so he's like yeah sure that's your calf it's not like you're gonna go and eat from someone that's not your mother right Mm -hmm. fine did not accept this and he was like nope that's definitely my employer's calves so he went and took the calf and, like, put it in with all the cows from the company he had been hired with. Pow didn't see him do this. He just kind of, like, noticed the calf wasn't with his cows anymore. And he spotted it and went to go get it. Fine. Fine Gillian is his full name. I know I keep going back and forth. I should pick one. But anyways, Gillian saw Pow coming over to get the cow and nobody heard what they said but like words started to be exchanged Gillian wasn't gonna let pow take the cow and pow pulled out his gun and just like shot at the ground at Gillian. that was kind of supposed to be like i'm taking the cow well Gillian like ducked down and then shot at pow multiple times which i always hear these stories and i'm like how bad of a gunshot were you because you hear these stories and they're like several several shots were exchanged between the men and i'm like you were close enough that you were in arguing range how bad are you with a gun that it took several shots and you're the hired gunman but anyways that's i guess it depends on the gun maybe maybe that's what we'll give them it's just it was 1891 and the guns sucked but long story short they didn't suck bad enough because Pow died in the ensuing gunfight. Oh, Yep, the nice guy, whose cow it actually was. I really so, hope that this little calf is so traumatized by this, it comes to seek revenge. Not quite, but we'll get there. Damn it. <laughs> so, Pow's son saw this all go down and went and told the livestock ranger, and then basically it got to a Texas ranger. Um, and the, tex- the Texas Ranger went to find Gillian. When he confronted a man who he thought was Gillian, the man pulled a gun on him and the Texas Ranger shot him dead. So Gillian, dead. Following the deaths of both of these men, the bull, nobody claimed the bull at that point. So he just got, he got a brand like you're supposed to do, but the brand was murder. Just 
murder on the side of the cow. And then they just released him into the park. They were like, or into what would be the park. He roamed for a while and then, you know, eventually as bulls do, he died. And so now the phantom bull roams around Big Bend as a harbinger of death and murders to come. So like allegedly if you see the bull, like you're going to die or get murdered. Okay. It's a bizarre ass story. And I love it. I have mixed feelings. Like, first of all, I was like, I don't know where this is going, but I like it and I want to see it. But now I don't want to see it. (laughs) But also that poor little bull. That poor bull. It wasn't his fault. I know. I can't believe they just put murder on the side of it. And I have to admit, when I first read the story, I thought they said it put murderer. Like I put an extra ER on the end of that. I'm like, the bull didn't commit the murder. But no. They were just, I guess they were just like, we don't know who owns it. We can't put the owner's brand on it because of murder. So nobody can own it. Murder. Now I have concerns. Like who was his cow best friend? Who fed him? Was he lonely? Right? I don't know. Maybe because there weren't really fences. I think he probably still had friends. He probably showed up at the auction pretty regularly and they were just like, oh, there's the murder bull. Don't take that one. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm hoping. Like, he had ladies. That's what I'm hoping. He's, he definitely did. There's no way he mm-hmm. didn't. They were, like, mm-hmm. free-ranging in that area. That's why the whole branding thing was such a big deal. You had exactly. to have a brand because they were all mixed in with each other. Okay, that makes me feel a little happier. So anyways. Cow friends. That was a weird one. <laughs> so the other short weird one that I've come across, and I couldn't find enough information on it because, well, let me tell you what it is, and then I'll tell you why I couldn't find information on it. It's okay. the living dinosaurs of Big Bend Park. So they I've have, never heard of this, and I'm very interested. I maybe. know. They have is their this like own... Jurassic Park living dinosaurs? No, this is like we think they've just hung around out here on their own. That's terrifying, but interesting. Go ahead. Well, they're small. Well, they're smallish. Um, so they're called the Mountain Boomers, and they are five feet tall, greenish-brown lizards that run on two legs. And they're called the Mountain Boomer because it, quote, produces a bark like distant thunder, end quote. I love that they referred to it as a bark and not like a call or a vocalization, a bark like distant thunder. So it's believed to be a theropod, which is one of the three-toed dinosaurs. The sad thing is I know what you're doing and I know you have just Googled mountain boomer. There is an actual lizard called the mountain boomer. I'm looking at it now. It's actually quite pretty. Yes. It has a yellow head and a blue body. Yes. And I have to tell you, somewhat disappointed if this was going to be a dinosaur. That was not, that's the thing though. The people who have seen it, like they show them pictures of that mountain boomer and people go, no, that's not what I saw. So there are, there are the non-believers who think people just saw the mountain boomer lizard. And then there are the believers who are like, no, it is a five foot tall dinosaur. In the seven, these were the only two stories I could really find of people seeing it, other than just like random. Oh yeah, I saw one. Um, but in because the s- there were dinosaurs in the area, there were yes, and that was what I was going to get into. That's why it's so hard to research these because if you type in Big Ben and then anything to do with dinosaurs, you get a whole bunch of information about the fossils and like. There was a dinosaur that just recently was discovered to be a new species in the area, and you get a, you get a lot of that. So that's fascinating. If you are interested in dinosaurs, you can definitely Google Big Ben dinosaurs. But if you try and Google Big Ben living dinosaurs, you don't get as much information on the mountain boomer as you would appreciate. And then that also, it shares it shares the name with the actual lizard. So it's very hard to Google these stories, but. In the 70s, a car claimed to be run off the road by one of these dinosaurs. 
And then in the 90s, somebody claimed that they saw one eating roadkill. And then when they tried to drive up closer in their car to get pictures of it, it ran away as the car got closer. But everybody who has seen one is very vehement about like, no, this thing was five foot tall. It was a dinosaur. It is not that little lizard you are showing me. Now I need to see one of these things. Right? I don't want to keep it. I just want to see I just want to see one. Yes. So the final story I have for you is mystery and intrigue and maybe a scam, but interesting nonetheless. So I was so taken in by this story and it just is so unbelievable that I had to double check the sources I was reading because I was like, this has to just be like some BS that somebody's made up and I'm on some weird web page. No, I was on library.solross.edu, a college library, and then I was also on the nps.gov website where I got information about this. So Okay, so legitimate. Legit. So let me tell you what it is. And it is the Big Bend Tablet, which is either the world's greatest scam. Well, maybe not. But it's a pretty good scam or even weirder. So it's a tablet that was found by hikers Donald and Reva Uzel and their Alaskan friends Charles and Bernice Nichols. And so these are two pairs of husband and wife. And they found this tablet in 1962. They were hiking on the Tornillo Creek. I don't remember who it was, but one of the men looked in a cave. He saw just like an interesting little cave and he looked in and he saw like what looked like tablets in there and he pulled them out. They saw that there was inscribing on the tablets and they couldn't read it so they brought it to a park ranger but the find wasn't really taken seriously and it sat around for eight years and during that time it ended up crumbling to dust no luckily Nichols took a lot of photos of the tablet before he turned it over to the park rangers so we have photographs of it we just don't have the actual tablet they sent the photos to Miriam Lawrence, who was a Sol Ross University professor and an archaeologist, and she was able to get the tablet translated and found out that it was a prayer to the god Mithras written in both Iberic and Lycinian and dated around 300 AD is what she is saying. Now here's what you may have noticed with that face you made. Iberic and Lycinian? Not something spoken in Texas. No, that's um, from, like, the Anatolian Turkish region of the world. So let, I will, I'm, let me read you what the translation was on the tablet, and then I'm going to tell you something that I am going to go down this rabbit hole. So I'm excited. I don't know where we're going, but I'm along for the ride. Yes. So the tablet read, Why this suffering? Ah, what anguish. A call to prayer, 29th December. First winter month, year eight. No, I'm sorry, year six. Heal us, heal us, heal us. The faithful by sorrows are beset. O guide us, Mithras, show forth thy power and thy promises of aid as revealed by Ahura, Mazda. So here's the wormhole I want to go down because I didn't know this was a thing. They think it may have been an expedition made by the Greeks up the Rio Grande about 1600 years ago. And at first I was like, did I read that right? But then in reading another article, apparently Nichols also contacted a hus another husband and wife team, Jack and Bernice McGee. And the McGees 
have worked on several other discoveries of ancient inscriptions, random occurrences of Roman, ancient Roman coins, and so forth around the U.S. So it's not like this one big bin tablet has been found and it's, you could be like, aha, a hoax. There's apparently just like random ancient Roman and Greek stuff in the United States. So this is a wormhole I'm going to dig down. Now, the naysayers of the tablet say that this tablet was made from just sun-baked silt from the riverbed and the carvings were very recent and there's no way that it was an ancient Roman tablet. They also point to the fact that it crumbled to dust in eight years as proof that there's no way it was ancient. The true believers, or however you want to say it, they say that it's basically was mishandling of the tablet that made it crumble to dust. So I kind of agree with the mishandling of the tablet, because if you think about it being in a cave where it was like undisturbed. And dry. So dry. And dry. And had been in this environment mm -hmm. to be removed and then shuffled and whatever else. Right. And I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't like, I've crumbled into nothingness and complete disintegration. I'm sure that it broke apart and they were like, bam, and threw it away. Right, especially if they didn't believe it was anything to begin with. Which, right. I mean, let's just be real about the kind of people who would be park rangers in the Big Bend National Park area. They're not going to... In the 60s. In the 60s. Yeah, they're not going to be about this. So I don't actually think that it's very far-fetched to believe that the Greeks, known for sailing, couldn't have somehow managed, and the Romans, couldn't have managed to get over here because you have Viking evidence in North America. Right. So, and it would have been around 300 AD. So that's not, I mean, that's not so terribly long ago that you wouldn't still have artifacts. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, and this is much more recent, but I remember being a kid and they were talking about how, um, like the conquistadors did not come up into this part of the state. Do you remember that? Like yes. vehemently, there yes. were no Spanish. They never came here. Groups ever yes. here. And there's evidence in freaking Menard where they have forts. Yeah. Like, okay. Okay. So I just think that um, you should be open to things yes. unless something is proven to be otherwise. Yes. Well, and one of the things that I think people used to point to is they used to be like, well, the, the Greeks and the Romans, because they were on their little ships, they never really sailed where they couldn't see land. They always stayed close enough to land that they could see landfall. And then within the past, like, I think it was within the past five years, they made a discovery where they have found not just like one or two, but a plethora of sunken ships from that era far out to sea. So it's just kind of evidence that like, no, they sailed much further than we ever gave them credit for. I definitely want to go down this wormhole of the potentiality of ancient Greeks and Romans in America. So that's one I'm going to have to, I've made notes for myself to like dig into this more. So I choose to believe that these are very interesting tablets that are actually from ancient Roman and Greeks in America because I want to learn more about this and it fascinates me. I don't really me. have an opinion, but I'm open. Yeah. So, oh yes. So I actually, um, make sure that you guys follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. Yes. We also have a Patreon. We do have a so Patreon. 
you should follow us on Patreon. Yes. Become our patrons, and you get amazing behind-the-scenes footage. Yes, the Patreon um, gets you a shout-out in whichever episode is released after you subscribe. All patrons get a shout-out. Certain levels of patrons get a shout-out every episode, um, so long as they are subscribed. We have different tiers, but they will get you access to the unedited audio, the unedited video of us recording so you can watch us make faces and roll our eyes when we talk about ridiculous things <laughs> and laugh and hear us yell at our pets as they misbehave in the background which it's true amazing content that i know you desperately want um there's also a tier that gets you access to a monthly hangout with us live hangout where we have a video chat and we just talk you can ask us questions we can just chat whatever you want I would just like to say we're pretty charming. We're so charming. <clears throat> we are pretty charming, and everyone should do that one. Yeah, I think you should too. How do you not want to hang out with us? That's what I'm saying. We are actually now available on seven platforms. Yeah! So you can listen to us on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Woohoo! So make sure that you subscribe wherever you're listening so that you can get new episodes from us. Yes, and please give us a rating and a review if you like our podcast. If you don't like our podcast, then we don't want to hear about it. Um, That's true. It's so true. Because we're not changing, sorry. Just, to be, just to be fair. Though if you do have feedback, like if there's something up with our audio or anything like that, we do want to hear that. But if you just don't, like, if you just don't like us, then well... Keep that tough for you. Um, and I think I've been saying this the past several episodes, but I will say it again. We should be on Apple Podcasts and we should be on Stitcher soon. Um, um, so I'm not sure that we'll be on Stitcher, but we will be on Apple Podcasts and CastBox. Ah, CastBox, not Stitcher, sorry. Since we spoke about touristy areas, and I live in a touristy area, I think I will sign off with... Respect the fucking locals. I dig it.